everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome, Christian Parenti. So excited to have you back on the show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. And Christian Parenti, in case you don't know, is a professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York. He's also the author of several books, including Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, The Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change, and the New Geography of Violence, The Freedom, Shadows and Hallucinations in Occupied Iraq, The Soft Cage, Surveillance from Slavery to the War on Terror, and Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis. Christian, you have a new piece at Compact Magazine, and it is called Diversity is a Ruling Class Ideology. So what made you write this piece in the first place? Well, one is just the, the, you know, the prevalence of uh, diversity as ideology, diversity ideology, uh, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, this, this sort of stuff. It's everywhere and it's, it's in every workplace. So there's that element of it, but it's also uh, rereading Federalist 10, really reading it. I'd read it in college or something, but in writing the Hamilton book, I read it. And it's an amazing document because it's the ruling class saying the quiet part out loud. And it was written by James Madison. And Madison was one of the, like probably the most important driving force behind designing the constitution. And the constitution had to be ratified by nine of the 13 states and that ratification was actually not guaranteed. There was a lot of opposition to the Constitution because it created a, a very centralized and powerful state. And a lot of Americans felt, wait a minute, we, you know, we just threw off, we fought a war to get rid of such a state. And now they've, you know, a, a couple years after the fighting, there's this period of like interregnum where there's a different document serving as the, as the Constitution. It's called the Articles of Convent, um, the Articles of convention everyone spacing out it's early here in the morning confederate articles of confederation and that left most power to the states basically and that leads to a crisis in the 1780s and it's out of that crisis culminating in shay's rebellion which is a class war by indebted farmers against the creditors who are bleeding them dry and in response to that they hold the constitutional convention and they create the constitution which creates a a very centralized and powerful state and a lot of people did not like that and so ratification of the Constitution, which required a majority vote uh, in nine, you know, nine states had to pass, the agreed to ratify the Constitution. And then all 13, all 13 states agreed that if nine of us ratify this, then we'll all go along with it. But it was not at all clear that nine states would ratify it. And so Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay got together and they wrote a series of essays, 85 essays in all, that are later known as the Federalist Papers. And each of these essays took on an argument against the Constitution, against ratification, and countered it and said, look, look, don't be concerned about that, blah, 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 blah. And so Madison in Federalist 10 addresses elites and he says, 
Many fear that if we have political democracy, this will lead directly to economic democracy, that political democracy will lead to class leveling. And the ruling class, the propertied classes in those days had no compunction whatsoever of being open, saying, we don't want that. Why would we do that? You wait, 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 you, you know, this is dangerous. You give like common laborers uh, uh, the right to speak, the right to assemble, uh, you know, vote even, um, run for office. No, this is crazy. It's going to lead to economic democracy. They're going to come for our wealth and try and redistribute it. And so Madison said, don't worry about that. That is not, that's not that big a risk. He says, the only political democracy only threatens economic democracy if the majority of people who are effectively propertyless get together and oppose those who own most of the property. And he, he says it in those terms very, very explicitly. He says, look, society is, has forever been riven by faction and faction has myriad sources. It can be, you know, religious belief, uh, adherence to some political leader, geography, right? There's all sorts of sources of faction, as he calls it. And faction would be translated into our modern language as like interests, interest group, right? And there's, there's infinite ways to sort of divide and define people's interests, right? And he said, the risk of faction is only if that majority faction gets together. If the majority of people who are poor or propertyless get together and oppose the minority who own everything. And he says, so the solution to preventing that is to lean into the problem of faction, to encourage faction, to encourage division among people, and to encourage a hypervarigation of interests. And I mean, that is essentially what modern diversity ideology does, is don't think of yourself as a worker. Don't think of yourself as an employee. Think of yourself as a subset of that. You are a trans worker. You are a, a, a worker who's a woman. You are a person of color. And, and, and you should think in these subcategories and not in the more universal category of being a worker, being someone who does not have property, etc. Right. So it's about think about other aspects of your interests, of your self-interest, other than the economic aspect. So that's what that that's what Federalist 10 argues is, is that so what we have to do is we have to proliferate faction. And if you do that, then you will make it impossible for the majority of the population to unite and wage, he doesn't say a class struggle, but that's what he's describing, to, to wage a struggle about who owns what, who gets what. Did they just like political democracy, but not like economic democracy? Like they were committed to political democracy or was it just strategic? Well, um, it was a bit of both. I mean, there were elites who, American elites who wanted enough democracy to push back against the control of the British crown, right? And so that's why there's a revolution. I mean, there's a revolution because there are enough different factions with enough different reasons that all make them want political democracy and freedom that they can get together on the basic question of like, let's get the Brits out of here and make our own laws. But then once that done, once that was done, then all the internal divisions come out. And, and most prominent among them is the class division. Um, 
And there's also the division around slavery. So there was, you know, different groups had different interests in democracy, right? And so the slaveocracy in the South, they were like, democracy for us means we locally here in South Carolina, we decide what we're going to do. Not everybody, property owners here in South Carolina decide what they're going to do. And that means that you abolitionists up North have no say. That's undemocratic. We, we control our business here. But then there was, you know, this rhetoric of freedom was very open and vague and all sorts of people grabbed onto it and filled it with their own meaning. So there was a, a very considerable working class, you know, popular class drive to the American Revolution. Workers heard freedom and like they interpreted it in their own ways. So everyone who fought, you know, on the American side and not all Americans did, there were plenty of loyalists who were, who thought this is crazy. What do you, you want to leave the largest empire in the world? Like what? No. Um, so, but all the patriots, you know, all the revolutionaries had various readings and very brought various meanings to what democracy would be. And this played out concretely around questions like the property qualifications to vote. And some states had property qualifications, some didn't. The U.S. Constitution, to its credit, does not include property qualifications. There's no racial uh, restrictions on voting or on office holding. There are no gender restrictions on voting or on office holding, but a lot of powers were left to the states and many states had property qualifications and then also uh, excluded women and excluded people of color from voting. Interestingly, not all of them did that. That the whole, it's not like everything was oppressive and then it all slowly got better and better. There were actually states that, I mean, things were quite oppressive and, you know, racist and sexist, but, but, but there were some surprises. Like in New Jersey, women had the right to vote if they had proper, if they met the property qualifications. Um, and believe it or not, in South Carolina, African-Americans who met the property qualifications could vote, but that's then quickly, like after the revolution, that's quickly undone. And most states, not all, have property qualifications. Now, not all those property qualifications were particularly onerous. Some property qualifications were, you know, it basically meant that, um, you know, if you were, if you had, you know, if you owned a house or you had a, a wagon and you're self-employed, you could vote. It just meant that the, the true proletariat, the people who, you know, rented and had no tools, no business, they just sold their labor. They were the ones who were excluded from, from voting. But those were state laws. But anyway. I digress. But the point is why, you know, political democracy was an open, contested field. And so, like, part of what Federalist 10 is about is, is saying to these property elites, relax, relax, don't worry. Don't worry that political democracy will run out of control. It could, but that will only happen if the majority group in society, which is to say, those who don't own very much and, uh, you know, are not men of property, if they all get together and unite and fight against the minority who are rich. And there's plenty of ways to keep them divided, you know, region, religion, etc. Did he lay out explicitly how they would lean into, as you said, these factions? It's more that he, he just, he says faction arises naturally. And uh, it's, it's basically just, you have to just encourage it and allow, 
allow faction to bubble up and, and not to fear faction. The only kind of faction to fear is that class majority faction. And so he doesn't, he doesn't say invent issues or this or that, which I think is actually an important point because it's not that the ruling class invents fake issues. I mean, they do that to distract people, but those don't work as well as real issues. And this is a contradiction that I think people get confused about. Like real issues with legitimate, with legitimacy can also be used nefariously, right? So I say in the beginning of the essay, right, it's important not to confuse diversity ideology and actual diversity, because actual diversity tends to inculcate cosmopolitanism, tolerance, sophistication, right? That's what actual diversity does for people. But the ideology of diversity, constantly thinking about, you know, how are we different? How, how, how are we not, you know, uh, despite all appearances and despite material reality, how are we not really actually in the same boat, right? And that works when it's like, yeah, well, there are real differences between the social conditions of men and of women, right? It's not to say oh, there's, oh, there's no difference. It's like there are real differences. But the larger interest that both men and women have, of like, you know, needing economic opportunity, needing uh, a fair wage, et cetera, um, is obscured by, by focusing on these other issues. And so it's not that these other issues are fake. It's that they aren't the underlying issue that threatens the ruling class, which is their money. They do not want the majority coming after their wealth and privilege, right? Period. It's like, you want more recognition, you want better conditions here, there. It's like, and some of those concessions are even kind of onerous here and there. It's like, all right, but, but it's like, okay, keep people struggling on that. And, you know, we can, we can have, you know, 10 years of discussion about like, how much, how far we should do on this. And is it fair vis-a-vis this other subgroup? And like, and it's not like the ruling class is everywhere all the time. Like, oh, this is great. And we don't, you know, they're, they're also kind of like, wait a minute. There's like the, these demands, the, these, these diverse demands are also in a way problematic. But the key thing is like, they are not the class struggle. And the, the, the mistake that the American left makes, I think way too often, is that we think that this is all going to somehow add up to a bigger and better class struggle. And I just don't think the record shows that, you know? It's just, um, we've been waiting my entire lifetime since, you know, the late 60s. It's like, when does, when does all of this come together as uh, a more unified, bigger, more inclusive left? It simply doesn't do that. If anything, it's been going in the other direction. You write, only an analysis focused on the exploitation, not oppression, of the producing classes by the owning classes explains why there is so much poverty and such colossal accumulations of wealth. So what is the difference between exploitation and oppression? Exploitation is, I'm using it there in the economic sense, it is the expropriation of money from a worker or money from a renter. It's, it's economic expropriation, ec- economic extraction. So, you know, um, one could be socially oppressed. You know, if you are, if a woman is kept out of a, a men's private club, right? These are the kinds of things that have been made illegal. Now, that's a form of oppression. No, you can't come in here, Katie. This is a men's club, right? You're being oppressed socially. Like, what? I can't, I don't get, I don't get access to this place where, you know, important decisions are made. That's a form of oppression, but it's not a form of economic exploitation. But when your landlord says, guess what? I'm tripling your rent. That's economic exploitation, right? 
it also produces oppression. It's like, you know, you have no power and you're, um, you know, you suffer psychologically for it, but it's like the material part is the exploitation where it's like, we're going to need a larger part of your paycheck now. Thank you. That's exploitation. You can't come in. That's oppression, right? And oppression and exploitation are usually bound up together, but they're not, they're not the same thing. So like, you know, you could say that in technical terms, frequently, right, people complain about uh, professional athletes and how overpaid they are. But, you know, some of these players, while they are very well paid, are also some of the most economically exploited. Not in some, They're not oppressed, you know. I mean, this is not like some, you know, they're not uh, like suffering necessarily. But just in terms of the value that they produce for the owners of these teams is compared to a fast food worker, enormous, right? Uh, the, the ratio of like, if you work part-time at McDonald's and it's like, how much value do you produce for McDonald's versus how much value do you receive as your wage? That ratio is going to be less out of whack than for some star athletes who, even though they receive $20 million a year, it's like, they're real stars. You know, the owners of the teams are frequently making orders of magnitude much more than that, right? So it's not a moral point, it's a technical point, the difference between exploitation and oppression. But I think it's important to um, to get that cleared up because, because I think part of what diversity ideology and the obsession with it has done to the left is that it 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 elides class and, and economic interests. And we, we just, we too often confuse oppression and exploitation. And they're not exactly the same thing. Economic exploitation often produces oppression and is bound up with it, but it's not the, it's not the same thing. And uh, to really, to deal with economic exploitation, you can't do bank shots and, and you know, beat around the bush. It's like, we have to be very explicit about the class struggle, the nature of like, you know, what it means to work under capitalism, produce surplus value, have surplus value extracted from you at the point of production, uh, as a renter, as a consumer, and um, and to think explicitly about that and not beat around the bush and think that that once there's enough sort of once enough inclusive moves and gestures, and very often it's not actual moves, it's just sort of gestures and rhetoric. Once enough of that is done that somehow this is going to add up to a bigger and better class struggle because I just, I don't see that at all. And it leads to, you know, it leads to really kind of silly thinking where where the left is supposed to, and, and often does, unfortunately, you know, celebrate the the, the diversification of elites and it's like that that's certainly better than having like uh it's it's better that the leaders of fortune 500 companies are diverse that there are women and people of color in the boards and not all just like straight white men as it was in the 50s but it doesn't actually change the economic relations you know i mean we wait we've got like uh we've you know we've 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 seen so much of that uh, and and the fact of the matter is that right we've we've now got what is it? Three women on the Supreme Court? Four women. We have four women on the Supreme Court, right? Uh, and what has, you know, what has happened? What are the conditions of the average woman like 
they're worse than they were in the 70s, economically speaking, because the average woman is working class, you know, and her wages are lower, her rent is higher, healthcare is more expensive, the, uh, you know, um, the, the schools are no, you know, no better than they were in the 1970s. So the actual conditions of the vast majority of women, regardless of their, their race or sexual orientation, but the vast majority of women in this country are working class and their material conditions have declined pretty significantly over the last 40 years. Yet one of the most important august bodies in the nation now has four women on it. And it's like, it's not that that's not important. It's not that that's not good, but it's just like, that doesn't do anything for women working at Walmart in Alabama, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's necessary, but insufficient, right? Like with the the question of abortion, I mean, and there's all these ways that that intersects with class. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think that to the extent that I don't know if this is true, but let's say that having a woman on the Supreme Court makes abortion more enshrined, which it clearly doesn't. But let's say it did do that, and it could do that. That's important, but it doesn't deal with the class issue, the class in itself issue. Yeah. Like it doesn't deal with poverty, but it deals with something that's exacerbated by poverty. Yes. And I think the more important point is that it's clearly, you know, it's not sufficient just to get women on the Supreme Court to deal with that. I mean, you know, abortion was protected by a court full of, full of men. And as Coney Barrett shows, you can be a woman and extremely right wing. And you can be Clarence Thomas and be terrible on civil rights issues. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There, there's a, there's an assumption that, and it's tricky, but there's an assumption that one's identity is going to dictate one's ideology. And that's, that's just not true. I mean, it's like, there's something to it. It's like, if you are, you know, if you're a person of color, you're going to have different insights into American society than a white person is. But there's no guarantee that you won't also just be like, yeah, like, you know, deregulate everything, privatize everything. I love, I love the free market. If you can't make it, you know, then F you, that's your problem. You know, I don't want to pay taxes to, you know, build public housing for you. You um, refer to this disparity discourse, right? Which is the uh, discussion about how underrepresented or overrepresented people are, right? So like, there are more white people in poverty than black people, excuse me, but black people are overrepresented, right? Mm -hmm. And the danger with that framing is, and I actually think it can be a useful like gateway framing for people who aren't trained to see things through a class lens. I think that because there's so much discussion about race and that's so much more um, explicit than class stuff, it can be a good way to explain to people why they should care about class stuff. But of course, there is a risk that like two things. One is it takes the focus off of class and also what if one day we have a class of poor people that is very representative of the racial population? Then are we supposed to not care about right. poverty? Yeah. And I, I mean, I paraphrase Walter Ben Michaels on that. I mean, he's, uh, and he, you know, is close friends with Adolf Reed and, and 
was heavily influenced by Adolf Reed, and then he wrote the book Against Diversity. And and yeah, he he was the first to sort of point out that the diversitarian ideology, though they don't quite say it, I mean, it's pretty clear that essentially what they're after is uh, a version of this class system, except that 13% of the billionaires are black and, you know, only 13% of the prisoners are black. And that would certainly be a less racist class hierarchy, but you could do that and still have brutal class hierarchy with ever greater levels of inequality. And the, the problem is thinking that that struggle to undo the disparate outcomes along identitarian lines, which is important, is going to add up to class struggle because it doesn't, you know? And so it's not that, you know, one should pay no attention to that and have no concerns about that. Not at all. But it's just, it's like, it is not, it's like, if, if 13% of the billionaires are black, that's not going to help the poor. And so in the essay, part of what I do is I go through and look at, you know, how just, if you try and research poverty, you'll see that there's enormous amounts of literature on the rates of poverty for every kind of group you could imagine. And what is very hard to find is a description of the poor as a single class, right? And so I think that's kind of revealing that the way we are, are taught to think about poverty is through this lens of disparity rather than in terms of like class. And it's a subtle thing, but I think it's very powerful. If you, you can imagine a, an undergraduate student having to write a paper and, you know, stumbling upon these sources, and they're just immediately going to get sucked into this whole worldview where it's about which group is more, who, who suffers poverty at a higher rate than other people. But when you pull the poor together and say, okay, well, who are the poor? What you find is, yes, there is, you know, uh, racism and sexism are, are glaring, right? That African-Americans suffer poverty at a much higher rate than uh, white people do. They suffer poverty at a rate that's almost, you know, twice that of their proportion in the, the overall population. But when you add it all up, you see, oh, the poor are kind of like the entire society. The majority of them are white. Um, you know, more than half of them are women, but it's like, you know, it's like, and, and you, you know, the, the, it was the, the point of that in the essay is just to try and kind of get us to think differently about um, you know, how to think about class. And then the ratio that's never discussed is the fact that 100% of the poor suffer impoverishment, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be as overwhelming a problem when you have percentages because the percentages are lower. Whereas if you add up all the people who live in poverty, you get the sense of how much of a problem it is. Yeah. And you also, a new object comes into focus. It's like this enormous class, which frequently can't even recognize itself as such. And you, you know, you realize, well, if, well, what's the issue? Is the issue the unfairness of racist and sexist discrimination as it expresses itself in terms of poverty rates? That's legitimate. Or is, you know, or in addition, are you also concerned about poverty? Like, and if you want to eliminate poverty, you know, the, the poor as a whole need to be considered. And the fact of the matter is the only people who are going to eliminate poverty 
are the popular classes, the poor and working classes coming together as such and making demands, organizing and creating forms of power that allow them to compel concessions and redistribution from the ruling class and to change the rules of the game so that redistribution is part of what government does, right? And you don't get to that by like adding up all the hypervarigated, like, well, like the rate of poverty for black trans people in the South is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, those are, you know, you, you, you frequently get snapshots of, you know, real oppression and poverty, poverty with, you know, real oppression and, and bigotry slab, slathered on top. But if you want to see an end to poverty, you have to be able to imagine a movement that can develop a program and have the power to implement that program. And at the base of that would have to be a unified group based on class. So how does it work? Because as you said, Madison said the quiet part out loud, but it's not like a conspiracy. So how do these things work? Like how are these factions exaggerated? It's like almost like an evolutionary thing, right? Okay, it's not a conspiracy, but there is also conscious intent at crucial times, right? Our political discourse is controlled by newspapers, right? The media, foundations, universities. And there are key choke points in the media, in universities, in foundations, where people who are pushing for class analysis are marginalized, thwarted, and even, in fact, you know, uh, destroyed and red baited out of out of the academy. That happened to my father. I mean, he was, you know, he was a promising, a rising, uh, really, actually, kind of like a rising star in mainstream uh, political science. And then he was radicalized by his students during the Vietnam War. And then it was suddenly, and he got into a class analysis. And then it was just like, whoop, you know, all the grant offers, all the sort of stuff disappeared. So there are key choke points where people bring their proclivities to bear. And sometimes that's understood in explicit class terms. Sometimes it's also just, you know, kind of anti-communism. So people who talk about class are the enemy, you know, that. um, But for most people, you know, we just get the discourse that trickles down. So then we're left reading all of the reports that then generate the newspaper articles that are constantly framing things in terms of disparity, right? And so most of us just, you know, absorb it almost by osmosis because it is the framework. Disparity discourse is the dominant framework, and you're just more likely to be exposed to it. But there are key moments where, you know, basically funders, people who hire, people who give or give grants, people, editors, people who decide what, what documentaries will be greenlit and funded, which ones won't, what articles will go on the front page of the magazine, which ones won't. And many of them are yes, explicitly hostile to a class analysis. And, and they say, no, you know, we'll have a bit of it, but then no, but too much, you know. And then they'll also, there's a kind of, you know, just mimicry and herd thinking that reinforces this too. So you learn that, oh, that's, that's reductive. That's ideological. I think this sounds too ideological. I don't know about Katie Halpern or policy. It's a little, a little ideological, right? It's like, People say stuff like that, not about you, I'm sure, but maybe they say it about me. Um, you know, and a lot of people, are, yeah, yeah, it's too ideological. But I never think like or ask, well, what, what do you mean? What does that mean? Too ideological. What what exactly does that mean? It's just and the vibe is like, oh yeah, we don't do the 
oh yeah, that's reductive. There's something a little weird about thinking about class too much. You know, if you're a good liberal and even a left-leaning liberal, you want to, you know, you think about it a little bit. You want to talk about poverty and disparities, you know, and you sound a lot like someone who's concerned about class, but if you get too focused on it, that's, that's a little weird. That's kind of obsessive. Um, you know, maybe you're a tanky, whatever. It's like, they come up with this vulgar Marxist back in the day, functionalist. That's too functionalist. I haven't heard that for 20 years, but that was something sort of like from the 50s and 60s that was sort of still in the air when I entered graduate school. Like, oh, you don't want to be too functionalist. It's like suggesting that there are, like the sin of functionalism was suggesting that there are logical reasons for why these decisions are made, as opposed to just that there's kind of like, you know, random, you know, factors produce these class outcomes if you don't if you if you start suggesting that there's intentionality i.e that the rich understand and defend their interests that the rich have class consciousness which they do thanks again for listening to the katie helper show to hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.